Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part one of a three-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the Church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The name of this message is The Two Trees. It's a study in the anatomy of faith. And it is a three-part series. So for those of you that already took peeks at the notes, you need to act surprised as we go through this. Now, we have two pedestals that are going to be a part of this message. And in fact, if you... Whoa, whoa. Uh, I'll put it like that. All right. Does that seem balanced? Okay. Uh, and so as we go through this message, you can recognize that there's going to be two. In the Christian life... There are a lot of twos in the Bible, all throughout it. And so you'll notice that God is always choosing the second, and the first seems to be rejected. And so we are born, and we have a first birth, and yet that first birth is under condemnation, is under judgment. And unless we are born again and are a second born, then we actually will face the wrath that is aimed towards the first. And so as we go through this semester, even for those of you that are students, you're going to recognize this is a major theme, not just a minor one, but a major theme in Scripture. And it's the second covenant, for instance, that has salvation. It's the second Adam, or the last Adam, Jesus Christ, that is the man that saves. The first Adam fails, the second Adam saves. And so in this message, you're going to see that illustration of twos. However, we're going to talk about it in a different format than people. We're going to talk about it in the format of trees, which is a little unusual. Most of us don't think in the realm of trees. And so let's begin. Session one, the breaking of the jar, understanding the action of faith. Faith is an action. And now that sounds funny because faith is a noun. And here I am saying faith is an action. Faith demands an action. It's sort of like a car is meant to drive. Faith is not meant to sit. It is meant to do something. So I'd like to talk about what that something is. The importance of faith. This is a quote from the Bravehearted Gospel. Christianity is built on one very basic thing, faith. And without faith, there isn't much left in the whole operation because everything in Christianity that matters operates with it. If you want grace, you need faith. If you want to know God's love and live in God's love, again, it's faith that provides the passport. Salvation? Yep, faith. Victory? Uh-huh, faith. Holiness? Faith. Righteousness? Faith. It says in Hebrews eleven six 6 that without faith it is impossible to please God. Then again in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Oh, and yet again in Ephesians 2, 8, you are saved by grace through faith. It would appear that a lot rests on the idea of faith, and in fact a lot does. In this whole gospel schematic, faith is the linchpin. If faith is absent, then the gospel is rendered powerless in a human life. Faith is the sole fuel upon which the gospel spark kindles and sets aflame. Faith needs something in order to be faith. Sort of a funny statement, but I'll explain. 
It needs an object of faith. You see, faith has to have a focal point. That's the entire idea of faith. A lot of great Christians through the ages have likened faith to eyesight. But it's not eyesight of your biological, natural eyes. It's eyesight of a different dimension. It's a part of our life that has become dead in Adam. And when we are being revived and being awakened by the Spirit of God, we gain eyes. We like see for the first time. And what do we see? We see another realm. We see another reality. It is there and it's always been there, but we have been dead to it and we haven't seen it. But faith sees. And so it needs an object. It needs something to look upon. You see, if you do not have the awakening of the Holy Spirit, you still have eyes in your soul, but they don't look at the right things. In other words, you actually still have faith. You have confidence in something. One of the statements that rattled my life maybe more than any other is that the church today has more faith in the power of sin than it has in the power of Jesus Christ to deliver us from sin. It was this random statement that was just spoken one day in my life, and I remember pausing and thinking, that sounds strange. Can you have faith in the power of sin? You have confidence. It's an object. You actually believe that it has more control, it has more authority, it has more ability than God to deliver you. That is unhealthy. And yet, it's a great enunciation of where most of the church is at today. We have confidence that we'll continue to sin. We have no confidence that God can rescue us from it. That needs to change. So, what does faith need to be faith? It needs an object of faith. It needs something to look upon and consider impressive. It needs something to trust, something to put its confidences in. It needs an object of salvation. The girl and her treasure. So let's go back to the times of Jesus. And there is a girl, her name is Mary of Bethany, and she has a treasure. She has, get this, an object in which she has placed her confidence. That object has a very specific name in Scripture. However, depending on which translation you've used growing up, it has all sorts of varieties of how it's been expressed. An alabaster box, a flask, a vial. I mean, these are such varying things. You're going to notice that I'm going to refer to it as a jar. Whether it was a jar or not, I actually don't know. A vial, a box, a flask, a jar. These are all very different things in my mind. However, it was some kind of container. And in that container, the container, by the way, doesn't matter. It was what's inside the container that she had her confidence in. It was her treasure. It was the object of her confidences. If everything went bad, she had something she could turn to. So it's the beautiful picture of faith in action. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he, Jesus, sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask, a jar, a container, a box, of very costly oil, of spikenard. Then she broke the flask, the jar, the container, the box, whatever we call it, and poured it on his head. And so some of you could say, so I, I thought she poured it on his feet. I've read this story before. Well, yeah, John then brings up the same story and says, then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. So the best way of saying it is John, who wrote his gospel quite a long time later, is either talking about a different time, and Mary came in again and did it, because there's also another story of another Mary. And so this can be confusing. However, here's what we know. Very likely this is the same story because of what is 
included contextually, and that is that Judas goes to betray him immediately after in both situations, and that's hard to do twice. And so most likely this is the same story, and John is saying it wasn't just her head, it was also his, her feet, his feet. In other words, his body was anointed. So Mary has taken something that is very costly. You may not understand what this is, and that's why I'm going to spend a little time clarifying what it is. However, there is something that is taking place. She is taking this something that is very costly, very expensive. In one part of the expression of it says, worth a year's wages. If you worked for an entire year and bought one thing, that's a fairly valuable item. So this is worth a year's wages. It is an extremely valuable substance. Most of us would never dream of spending that much money on an ointment, a perfume, and oil, okay? And I, I wouldn't blame you. That would be a very strange investment. However, this is a very different time period. And the value of this is appropriated very differently than the way we would think today. And so what is happening in this situation, and God in the Word of God and the Gospel writers seem to go out of their way to enunciate something. When she pours out and breaks this jar on Jesus... There is indignation amongst those that are around. And ironically, we know in the context that that indignation came from a man named Judas. And Judas actually, as a result of this very scene, goes to the priest to betray him. Something about this scene offended him. Here's what I want you to know. When you walk in real faith, the type of faith that changes the world, it will bring about an indignation from those looking on. And you could say, what's the big deal? Hey, it's my personal decision to believe in God. Well, just watch. You see, when you give up that which the world has put confidence in, the world could say, hey, you have that? Yeah. But it's nothing compared to who I've found. I have found Jesus Christ. Hey, oh, what are you going to do with that? I'm going to break it open on him. Hey, oh, stop, stop. Hey, hey, that's worth something. You see, you have something to give. And the world could commend you. A lot of you that have just arrived at Ellerslie, Maybe you were the leaders back where you came from, and you've had a lot of pats on your back. It's like, you're going somewhere. And then someone says, so what are you doing next? And you say, well, I'm going to go to Ellerslie. What? What are you, what, what are you doing? Yeah, it's like some school. I know, what, is it a Bible school? Ah, I don't exactly know how to describe it. <laughs> wait, 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 why are you doing that? You have some potential. You're going places. And then you come here, and there's indignation that can awaken around you. So here's the quote. But that spike nard is some valuable stuff. You see, the world puts value in this spike nard. The world holds it as its treasure. The question as we go through this message is, do you? You see, when you make the stuff of this earth your treasure, you cannot make the stuff of heaven your treasure. And the stuff of heaven is worth far more. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? Then saith one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? What is spikenard? I'm going to call it the healing juice. Now, some of you, because of the translation, understand it as perfumer ointment, which means very little to us, especially all of us guys in here. It's like, oh, boy, let's dump that stuff out. <laughs> However, spikenard is more than just a perfume. The fact that it smells good is actually one quality of this amazing stuff. 
I'm going to call it the healing juice, which is sort of an awkward way of describing it, I have to admit. But I, I mean, I spent a good portion of the week just trying to figure out how to articulate this so that you would see it. This is amazing. It, it's a substance that is derived. It is like a juice, but it's an oil. In other words, if you take an orange and squeeze it, out comes juice. It's the juice of the orange. But if you, if you take the head or the spike of this particular plant and squeeze it, what comes out is a juice, but it's an oily juice. And so that's why it's an oil. That's why we would understand it in that way. So that's correct. But we're going to call it the healing juice. In scripture, it's known as nardos. So if you're thinking of naming a child someday, you should think of this, this word, nardos. Hey, hey nardos. Isn't that, isn't that great? Nardos Ludi. It's actually a, a, a wonderful word, but just not very attractive. Not very poetic, I have to admit. So what is spikenard? Spikenard is the head of a fragrant East Indian plant which yields an oily juice of delicious odor which the ancients used, either pure or mixed, in the preparation of a most precious ointment. It's a healing juice used for an extraordinary number of ailments. I mean, it's actually shocking. As I was studying this this week, I began to realize, wow, could you give me some of that stuff? I mean, it's really amazing. Some of you are going to go out and go straight to Google. In fact, you might even start doing it now. It's like, buy spikenard. It's a healing juice used for an extraordinary number of ailments. It's a skin tonic that helps to cure fungal and bacterial infections. It's impressive. And provides relief from various types of inflammation. It helps cure constipation. That could be important. It provides relief from insomnia, stress, and anxiety. It's a perfume and is also an effective deodorant. In addition to that, it treats allergies, fevers, hemorrhoids, angina pain, and varicose veins. This healing juice aids in cell regeneration, the healing of wounds, the circulation of blood and lymph, and the secretion of hormones and enzymes. It's the cure-all substance. That's amazing stuff. What saves you? And some of you could say, spikenard is my, uh, is my chosen means. I turn to spikenard. What is in your medicine cabinet? Spikenard. As a Christian... What's in our medicine cabinet? Where do you turn? What is your source of wholeness and health? Think about it. This was the ultimate cure-all, and an entire nation could be wooed unto the healing properties of spikenard. And yet Mary, who has a year's wages worth of the stuff that the world around her would say, whoa, that's, that's valuable. This came from East India. This is of a high value. And she says, not compared to the one that I've found. A quick lesson in the Greek. Three words to help us understand faith. Introducing Mary of Bethany and her treasure. Mary had something quite special in her possession, a big jar of very expensive healing juice. This big jar of very expensive healing juice was the ideal thing to keep stowed away in her pantry. For if ever she fell upon hard times, she could always sell her extremely valuable healing juice in order to survive. So without even knowing it, she put her trust in this big jar of very expensive healing juice. So our first Greek word is pistis. Now I want you to attempt to hold on to these things. That's why it's good to have notes. But pistis is a critical word in the Greek and in your Christian life. And that is faith. It's a noun, and so this is the operation of faith. When you have believed in Jesus Christ, it is called faith. You have faith in Christ Jesus. So Mary had faith. She had pistis in her big jar of very expensive healing juice. Mary was introduced to Jesus Christ. When she saw Jesus, she realized 
that he indeed was the proper object of her faith. So she believed in Jesus Christ. Now, have you ever heard it said that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved? Now, doesn't it seem a little confusing because aren't you supposed to have faith to be saved? So wait a minute here. Yeah, that's a good point, Eric. I thought I'm saved by faith and yet I'm supposed to believe? This is why it's important. You need to realize that faith and belief are actually the exact same thing, but faith is the noun, believe is the action. However, because of the way we translate it, we don't oftentimes see it that way, and that's why I wanted to introduce you to the Greek. Remember our first word was pistis? This word is pistuyo. In other words, is the actions based on the same idea. It's that which puts confidence. If you truly have faith, then you will prove it by believing. Believing is the action of faith. So translation, to believe, it's the action of faith. Mary, in seeing the ability of Jesus to save her, believed, or I'm going to say pastuyod, in him and trusted that he indeed was her salvation. Okay, so just to eliminate that funny tripping point, that faith and believe are actually different, they're exactly the same idea. One is the noun and the other is the action, okay? based on the same Greek root. Mary realized that to believe in Jesus, she needed to give up her trust in her big jar of very expensive healing juice and transfer all of her confidence to the master of her salvation. So our third word is another very significant and very fascinating word. We're going to call it pastikos nardos. Now, I already didn't introduce you to nardos, right? However, there is a word in the Greek, if you study the use of the word spikenard, and it has a Greek word associated with it, which is pastikos. Now, remember our first word? Pistis. Our second word? Pastuyo. Our third word? Pastikos. It's the object of one's faith. She had an object of her faith, and it was called spikenard. That's where she had put her confidence. She had lent her confidence, her trust, to this object, this box, this container, this jar. And she said, that's what will Save me in a time of need, in a time of drought, in a time of when bad things may happen. I can always turn to my jar of spikenard. And so that's what's so important about this story. There's something critical about this story. Jesus himself is going to point at it and say, don't miss this. So translation, it's the object of one's faith, the expensive liquid in which one trusts. Now, I'm saying something here, and it might be sort of awkward in the way I'm saying it at first, but hopefully you'll catch it. I'm saying the expensive liquid in which one trusts. And you're like, yes, you, you said that. Yeah, but I'm, I'm trying to hint towards something. Everything we ever teach here at Ellerslie is aiming towards one thing, and that is Jesus and him crucified. It is Jesus and his labor, what he did on our behalf. That is what every sermon points to. That is what every conversation points to. It all is to the solution, to the second, to the one who saves, to the one who redeems, to the one who cleanses, to the one who forgives. And he has, uh, strange as this is, an expensive liquid that he has made available to us that is far better and its healing properties blow out of the water anything you'll ever find in the healing juice known as spikenard. So if you're thinking about Googling spikenard and buying a whole bunch of it, I would encourage you to listen to this message. I want to introduce you to something even greater. I want to introduce you to the blood of Jesus. 
Mary broke open her big jar of very expensive healing juice on the head and feet of Jesus. She gave up her sole allegiance to her previous Pasticos Nardos and transferred her loyalties to Capital Pasticos, Capital Nardos. I know most of you have never thought of calling Jesus and his work on the cross Pasticos Nardos. However, it's the object of one's trust. And I'll tell you what, when I look at that cross and I look at my Savior, my Redeemer, and I look at his life poured out, his blood shed for me, I say that is where I find my confidence. It's called Christianity. In a strange way, in this message, it's called Pasticos Nardos. Four key truths about faith. The first one, faith to be genuine must have action. It must believe. If you have faith, prove it by showing it in action. This is what the book of James is about. It can oftentimes confuse people. It says, faith without works is dead. And we're like, oh, no, we're not saved by works. Oh, James, this is a dangerous line of reasoning. What he's saying is faith without the action of faith, faith without movements is dead. If I tell you that I have a sword and someone's coming up to me and bopping me in the nose in the midst of battle or shooting me, whatever it would be, and I don't swing the sword, what's the good of me knowing that a sword exists? Acknowledging in my head that there's a sword doesn't actually cause the sword to do its work in my life. We have been given something at the cross. You can't just have head knowledge of it. You can't just have this mental cognizant understanding that it exists. You must believe. And believing is the work of faith. When you truly have faith, James would say, show it to me in your work. Prove it to me by the doing. The doing is not, it's not trying to live up to the righteous standards of God in your own strength. It's believing. You know what it says the work of the kingdom of heaven is? What is the work of our Father? What does he command us to do? It's to believe. I know that sounds strange, but that's the work. It's sort of the Father has a business. And that business is to build and to glorify the, the kingdom of his dear son. And the work of that, we've all signed up for. He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll come work for you. He says, all right, here's your job. We're like, all right, all right tell me what to do. He goes, believe. Like, huh? What? How, how do you do that? Well, that's what this message is about. I want to teach you how to do your work, how to believe. So here's our first truth about faith. Faith, to be genuine faith, must have action. It must believe. Second point, faith must have an object, a focal point in which to direct its confidence. If you do not see clearly who Jesus Christ is, if you are never introduced to the cross, you can't have true faith, the kind of faith that saves. You can have faith, you can believe, some, put confidence in something, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the sort of faith that changes your life and glorifies Jesus Christ, the kind that the Bible says pleases God. And for that, you must have an object And you must have something that truly bewilders you and awe strikes your soul. Whoa. You mean he has done that? I trust in what he has done. He is able to save me. Have you seen the cross? Do you know what it has accomplished? You see, that is part of what faith is. You must behold its magnificence. You must behold the work of Christ. Mary had an object. She believed in her big jar of expensive healing juice and that it could save her. But when she met Jesus, she repented of her faith in her sweet-smelling earthly liquid and transferred her confidence to something greater. We'll call it the healing juice of heaven. I know, a little strange, a little awkward. The precious and priceless blood of Jesus Christ poured out for her. The healing juice of heaven. 
also known as the blood of Jesus. You know what Jesus says? He actually refers to it as juice. I know that not many of us would ever think of it this way, but for the sake of our message, I figure I will quote Jesus. And he, Jesus, took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink you all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. He held up a cup full of liquid, and he says, this is my blood. Blood in the Hebrew is a signal and a symbol of life. When you press out a grape, they would call it the wine or the blood of the grape. And it's known as juice. We oftentimes would refer to it as grape juice. And so the wine of a grape, the blood of a grape, is what Jesus likens his work on the cross to. He's saying, I am giving you the blood of the grape. I am going to be crushed so that you would have this wine. This is the juice that will save. This is the juice that establishes a new covenant. And that covenant is in my blood. Where do you put your confidence? Do you put your confidence in the previous juice, Mary? In the juice of the Nardos? Or do you put your confidence in the juice of your Christ? What is the precious blood of Christ for? So I know that some of you were thinking of Googling and, and grabbing you know, a whole case full of spikenard. However, I would like you to pause just for a second because I want to introduce you to the blood of Christ. This is just a quick overview, by the way. If you thought the spikenard was impressive, just look at the healing qualities of this stuff. It's for atonement for sin, a propitiation. It's for our justification from sin, for the forgiveness of sins, for the remission of sins, for the cleansing and washing from all sin, for the purging of our consciences, for reconciliation unto Christ, for righteousness, for the purpose of saving us from the wrath that will come, for the destruction of the devil, for overcoming the devil, for redemption, eternal redemption, for the purchase of our very beings, for the purpose of giving us life within eternal life, for the bringing back to life, for sanctification, for spiritual and physical healing, for boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, for the purpose of enabling us to make our daily, hourly, minute-by-minute home in Christ Jesus. Give me that stuff. That's what I want. If you've been holding on to a box of spikenard, and that box or that jar, that container, that flask, that vial, whatever your holding device is, known as you, and you have put confidence in something outside of Jesus Christ, and that something is always proven because in a time of crisis, in a time of trial, you turn to it first. What do you turn to? Where does your confidence lie? That is the critical core question of the soul of every single one of us. Because if you have anything outside of Jesus, any bank account that you could turn to, any investment portfolio that you could turn to outside of Jesus, if it is replacing Jesus in your life, because by the way, there's nothing wrong with spikenard. Nothing. It's perfectly fine. God created it. It's when it replaces and it becomes the object of faith that it is dangerous to your soul because it is an idol that is blockading and standing in the way of the place that Jesus is meant to keep, to hold, to establish. He must be our pastikos nardos. He must be the one that we turn to, the one that we have confidence in. And if we lost our pastikos nardos, small p, small n, and it just was robbed one night, we would shrug our shoulders and say, well, that wasn't where my confidence lie. You can always prove it by when God touches it and says, would you be willing to give this up? <clears throat> your response will show you if it's a capital P in your life. You see, there's nothing wrong with having spikenard. There's nothing wrong with having a bank account. There's nothing wrong with having medicine. 
It's when it becomes your salvation, and without it, you can't imagine living. You begin to fret and be anxious the moment you even think of life without it. Something is wrong. What did Mary do? Mary demonstrated for us how faith works. When you see the real thing, you're actually willing to give up the counterfeit. You're willing to break it open, even though the world around you would cry foul and say, how could you? It was worth so much. Jesus points to Mary's actions. See, this is an unusual story in the Bible because it is one of the few stories in the Bible where Jesus will stop everything around him and he will point it out and he'll say, did you see this? There's very few stories like this. You have the widow's mite, for instance, a seemingly innocuous little story, and yet Jesus stops the presses and says, hey, guys, I do not want you to miss what this lady just did. And in this situation, we see a very similar action by Jesus. He stops everything. And it's like the camera zooms in, and it catches this. And Jesus says, do not let history forget this moment. What is taking place is central. It is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus points to Mary's actions and makes it clear that her behavior is the essence of the gospel. Says Jesus, assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial of her. What? did this woman do? Well, now, hopefully I've put some pieces together where you recognize that it is actually the essence of salvation. It starts, and it's based on the premise of faith, but not just faith of acknowledging, oh, Jesus is a pretty amazing guy, but it's understanding that Jesus is actually the object of our confidence. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Redeemer. And when you see it, What you're willing to do is repent and believe. To repent and believe, you must forsake your previous allegiance, your previous hold on another object of trust, and you must break that open and dump it out so that your soul is free to give 100% of your confidence in the true object of faith. And his name is Jesus Christ. So what did this woman do? She showed us how faith works. The concept is repent and believe. Repent is a word that I will very uh, happily say, even though it's politically incorrect today. You're not allowed to say it, technically. I think there's some unspoken rule book amongst Christian pastors. You're not allowed to say the words repent anymore because it makes people feel bad. Well, so be it. If you need to feel bad for a little bit, we'll make you feel bad because it's the truth. If you keep walking in the direction you are going, if you keep putting your confidence in something that can't save you, guess what? You're going to die. So because I love you, I will say, dump it out. Break it open. Turn from that. Set it aside. Do not let it harm your life anymore. Let it go so that you can embrace. You see, this, the concept of repent, there's many, many illustrations that I could give, but if you were holding something in your hand, and I said, could you take this for me? And you're like, oh, I got just have it. Have you ever had that where someone's trying to hand something, and you're like, oh, I got my hands full? Well, it's exactly right in your soul. If you're holding something else, and it's like you're trying to balance because you don't want to spill a drop of it. It's your precious jar of spikenard. If you are holding that, guess what? You don't have the arms to embrace and to receive that which Jesus wants to give you. And so it's very, very important that you repent. You forsake that which you're holding. You give that up so that you can now receive. A lot of us as Christians want to tack it on. It's like, could you just set Jesus on top of my bottle of spikenard? It doesn't work that way. You see, to receive Jesus, you must give up. And that is a very important dimension that most of us don't like. 
Now, it's not that you don't like it. It's just that it's uncomfortable, and we tend as modern Christians to gravitate towards that which, that which is comfortable. The gospel starts out with that which is uncomfortable. It says, come and die. Give up your spike dart so that you can have something far better. The gospel is actually good news, but to receive that good news, you must give up the bad. We want to keep the bad and tack on some good, but good is only good when you get rid of the bad. Now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee. Jesus is starting his ministry. John the Baptist has been put in prison. It's some kind of trigger for Jesus Christ, so he goes to Galilee. You will know the Messiah because his ministry is going to start in Galilee. Jesus comes into Galilee, and he's preaching something. What's he preaching? He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. What is that gospel? And saying the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Repent, and then what? Believe. Do the action of faith. If you truly have seen the one who can save you, then give up any false saviors. Give up any small m messiahs. Anything that you would turn to outside of the true Messiah, forsake it. Break it open. That cannot save you. You have now officially seen the one who can. It's not pouring out earthly spikenard that saves. You know, a lot of us get this confused. That we have our jar of spikenard, and, that's, and by dumping it out, we're going to be saved. Well, that's actually not what saves. It's faith that saves, which is in the action of faith, believing That's truly what accesses. And so if you truly believe, you will dump out and you will repent. And your hands are open to grab a hold of that which does save. So dumping out the spikenard isn't actually what saves you. It's faith and faith alone that can save you. However, if faith is actually faith, it will do the work of faith, which is to believe. And the work of, when you're actually believing, you're going to dump and get your hands open to grab a hold of everything that truly can save you. So it's faith that saves. It's believing that Christ is our rightful pastikos nardos that truly supplies us salvation. And when we see Jesus as our lone source of salvation, like Mary, we will gladly grab our jar of earthly spikenard and as an evidence of our faith, repent of putting our confidences therein and pour it out upon him as an offering of worship. The cup illustration. I should have had a cup here. That would have been really wise. But let's say we have a cup and it's full of some... Rather disgusting water. Have you ever gotten a... I, I'm very sensitive to like unwashed dishes that suddenly get recirculated through the kitchen. And now I have a glass and it has like things floating in it. I, I, ever since I was a young kid, my mom would always be like, it's fine, Eric. And I'm like, there's no way I'm drinking that. Uh, so I, will, I still, to this day, will always look at everything before I put water in. It's like, oh, is it like my mom's to me? And so imagine that you have not just a few floaties, but it's rather disgusting. And, you know, you're holding your glass. And how, it's funny how we have the most disgusting stuff inside of us. We're the cup, by the way. We have some of the most disgusting stuff floating around inside of us. And yet we're like, we're fine. I'm fine. It's okay. And we try and justify our dirty soul. We try and dust, justify our filthy water. It's poison. It's killing us. And so what Jesus says is, I made that cup to hold living water. And we're like, oh, great. Can you add it in? He says, to receive the living water, there is something very, very important, because living water and filthy water can't coexist. So what you need to do to receive the living water is dump out the junk. Why any of us hesitate is such a bewildering notion. Have you ever thought about that? Why would you hesitate to allow the filthy stuff to be dumped out? Why would you hesitate to repent? 
If you knew that two more steps forward, you're a dead man walking over a cliff, why would you keep walking? Repent means to awaken, to see what is reality, to turn and walk the right way. Dump out the dirty water. That's how you can receive the clean stuff, the stuff that will bring life. Pouring out the poisoned water inside in order that it might be filled, might be filled with living water. So here we go. We're going to go to the garden. The garden is where the two trees are. So now we're going to start getting into our tree illustration here. Welcome to the garden. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we have two trees in the garden. Most of us only remember one tree in the garden. But there's actually two. There was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I know it, we don't necessarily know for certain that it was an apple. Uh, tree. In fact, very likely it wasn't. But for the sake of discussion and for clear symbology, we have an apple here. Because most of us do understand that. And I don't know why it always got associated with that. Don't you feel bad for apples? Uh, So then we had another tree. It's the tree of life. And you know that it's been there from the beginning? The, The tree of life has always been there. However, Adam and Eve were cut off from it. Why? Because they turned to the wrong tree. So, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat freely. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eats thereof thou shalt surely die. You are free to eat of any tree. You know what that included? The tree of life. They could have eaten from the tree of life. What, what is it and why is it that anyone who has the privilege of eating from the tree of life would go to this tree? And yet... Uh, we all stand guilty. You know that the cross was before you were even born. And you've had a privilege of coming and partaking of Jesus Christ in your life. And yet you can think and probably remember certain moments in your life where you still chose, deliberately chose to go to a source for life that was opposite of him. How could we do that? Uh. Well, I have some illustrations for us. The tree over here, which is my left, your right, it has some really, uh, I mean, that might look like juicy fruit to you. However, it's poison fruit. Look at it. It's black. I don't know who in the right mind would ever eat black fruit. And then over here, we have a tree with, I mean, I know white fruit might not be that appealing either because usually that means moldy all over. (laughs) However, in this case... It means luscious, beautiful, life-giving, okay? You've just never seen white fruit. It's probably in heaven. They probably have white fruit in heaven. (laughs) And so in the middle, you stand. This is how faith works. You are in the middle, and you are, in a sense, like a judge, an arbiter. You need to make a decision between two trees. And how you choose will define the eternity of your soul. The wooing of the liar. Now, Genesis says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat thereof, then, the eye, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat it and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. 
Well, that's the beginning of some very bad news. You see, something took place that day which set forth a pattern and a course for the rest of humanity, which includes us. And you can understand a lot about your life by understanding this story. Because there's so much of what happened here that causes you to struggle even the way you do in life now. The first Adam's failure. Most of us don't think it through this way, but Jesus is called the last Adam. You see, salvation was intended to come in and through an Adam. Adam was in a position. His wife failed. And yet it says that she just gave him the fruit and he ate. It's like, whoa, Adam, what are you doing, buddy? What should the first Adam have done? Could you imagine if the first Adam had done what he was supposed to do? Eve, Eve, what have you done? God said, do not eat of that. The day in which you eat, you will surely die. But Adam, it's good. It tastes good. God may be lying to us. The serpent told me. He said that if we eat of it, we could be as God. We, we don't need to be subservient. We can be our own gods. And Adam steps back. He says, Eve. Eve. And who does he run to? He runs to God. He says, God, my wife has sinned. She has eaten of the forbidden. God. And God says, she must die. I know. I know what your word says. I know what your command was. I know you are just, and I know you must keep your word. Is there any other way? You can die for her. Imagine if the first Adam had succeeded. What would he have done? Take me instead. Now you begin to understand the significance of the second tree. The second tree is Adam doing it right. Take me instead. All of us have failed. Could you imagine Jesus? Father, the bride you've given me has eaten of the forbidden fruit. They must die. Is there another way? You can die instead. Whoa! That's amazing. It's even romantic. <laughs> we are in Adam's failure. Part of what we see in the lineage and the descendancy and the way God made us is that in a sense, I was in my father. As odd as that is, and we're not going to go into any technical biological message about this. However, I was in my father. And he was in his father. Technically, that means I was in my grandpa. I was in him. That's odd. I know. But if you keep going back, you know what that means? I was in Adam. In the very beginning, when Adam sinned, I was in him. And it says in Scripture that because of that, in one man's sin, all sinned. His sin was bequeathed to me. And I started with an, a corrupt frame, a corrupt disposition. Something went wrong in me because of Adam's failure. So when you understand the cross, you begin to realize something has now gone right in me because of one man's success. You see, when you come unto Jesus, it says that you are in him. The same way I was in Adam, I can now enter into a new lineage. I'm born anew because of a second tree. I actually have life. What was dead is now alive. So we are in Adam's failure. We are born clinging to our very expensive big jar of earthly healing juice. It's called self. The two trees. We have the tree of T-K-O-G-A-E, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
That's a hard thing to write on a screen, by the way. And the tree of life. Two trees. You know, throughout all of history, we have two trees. We have a tree in a garden where man failed. And we have a tree thousands of years later on which a man hung. Fruit hung from a tree. And God says, if you eat of that fruit, the day in which you do, you will die. Well, thousands of years later, Jesus, fruit hanging on a tree. The blood of which, when it is crushed, will be the new covenant that will save us. And he says, unless you eat of that fruit, you will die. Isn't that amazing? First, what is a tree? It's a place of decision, a place of judgment. Most of us don't think of trees as a place of decision, and yet it is in Scripture, and we don't think of it as a place of judgment, and yet it is. The law of the forbidden tree. If you eat, you die. It's a place of decision. How are you going to choose, Adam? How are you going to choose, Eve? The way you decide will define the course of your life. And they chose wrongly. It was a place of judgment. It was a place of decision. It was a place of judgment. What do we have all these thousands of years later at Calvary, at the cross? It's a tree. It's a place of decision, and it's a place of judgment. You know that if you choose wrongly at this, you are judged? But if you choose rightly, the judgment is already satisfied and settled in the person of Jesus Christ. The devil is judged. Sin, the flesh, they're judged. It is a place of judgment. It is a place of decision. And how you decide at this second tree is everything for your soul. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So what's the law of the second tree? Unless you eat, you cannot live. So when we go to the cross, there's actually a law. Unless you eat, you cannot live. So eat and live. It's called the law of sin and death over here. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You eat, you die. We have all come under the law of sin and death. God has spoken. We have violated it. We have all partaken of the forbidden. And as a result, we are all under Adam's condemnation. He failed. We have failed as well. We are all swallowed up in defeat and darkness. We're all under the thumb of the enemy. But Jesus Christ has made a way back to that tree of life. You know that that way was cut off and cherubim were set with flaming swords to guard the way to the Garden of Eden? The way to the tree of life. Lest man would stay in that condition forever. God sequestered it. And he kept it away from us. You know God has always had a tree. He's always had fruit that it would give us life. And it would give us life forever. However, we were cut off from that because of our sin. But Jesus, in and through his amazing redemptive work, has once again made a way for us to come unto that tree and eat of that fruit. Unless you eat, you cannot live. Listen to this line in John 6. Jesus saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's a little awkward. Not the way we would typically think of expressing what Jesus did. What he's saying is, look, this is fruit on a tree. I am food. And unless you eat of me, unless you have the living, healing juice that is inside of me, you have no life. You have eaten that which kills You know the second tree has a higher law? Even though you have partaken of this, if you turn and repent of this and believe and take this fruit, Jesus, and you turn your confidence here, you make this the object of your faith, guess what? You live. And unless you do it, you die. This is the ultimate 
message. It's called the gospel, the good news. The tree, the second tree has been made available to us. So over here uh, on the, the dark side, you have you eat, you die. And then over here, the side of truth, the side of life, which I put a Bible over here, which might seem strange. But we say, unless you eat, you cannot live. So eat and live. Partake of this. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will live. You see, Jesus is the enunciation of everything in this book. This is the word of God in text. Jesus is the word of God on two feet, in person. And so who do we believe in? We believe this and what it says of the word of God in person. And then when the word of God in person animates and goes to a cross and dies, and he says, unless you turn to this work, unless you are saved by my working, which is what grace is, we cannot live. So you eat, you live. The two trees and their fruit, the forbidden tree, a promise of self-glory, the word of the liar. This is the word of the liar. I'm going to establish that throughout the rest of our message today. And the second tree is the promise of salvation. So the other one is a promise of self-glory. This is a promise of salvation. It's the word of God. It's the word of truth. And so you're going to begin to see the distinction between the two options for how faith works. Faith must make a decision of where it's going to turn. Are you going to turn and keep turning to this? Or are you going to forsake this and turn to the truth? So here's how most of us as Christians live today. Imagine that is the middle line there. You see, there's a lot of good stuff in this world. A lot of fascinating things, a lot of notions that are very important for us to consider. You can't just consider what God says. You have to be open-minded to other notions, other thoughts. And so what do we do? Most of us actually spend most of our life hanging out with forbidden fruit, doing things that we actually know are wrong, but guess what? But I believe in the cross, therefore I have the grace of God, so he forgives me and cleanses me from all sin. So what are we doing? We're actually leaning in this direction with our foot over on this side. Say, no, no, I'm still with you, God. Oh, I love that tree. Great stuff. Is that how Christianity works? I'm going to teach you how Christianity works. It might shock you, actually. We don't participate with this tree at all. We repent. We turn our back on this. Thank you so much for listening to part one of this three-part message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.